Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast. This is a guided journey through scripture and I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at Romans 9 to 11 with Dr. Ross Wagner. Uh, Dr. Wagner is Associate Professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. Ross is a specialist in really two areas, uh, Septuagint on the one hand, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as Paul's letter to the Romans. And his research interests have uh, focused on the intersection of those two things. How does Paul use and interpret Israel's scriptures and the Septuagint? Um, uh, Ross uh, is the author of a number of important books, uh, one entitled Heralds of the Good News, Paul and Isaiah in Concert in the Letter to the Romans. And he also co-edited a book on Romans 9 to 11 with uh, Florian Wilk. Uh, his most recent book is Septuagint Isaiah and is entitled Reading the Sealed Book, Old Greek Isaiah and the Problem of Septuagint Hermeneutics. Now, when I was uh, a grad in graduate school or uh, about to embark on graduate school, uh, and I was asking other faculty members, you know, well, who should who should I pursue to be an advisor? Um, two people mentioned Ross's name. Uh, one was Peter Gentry, the Septuagintalist, yeah. uh, who recommended Ross, as well as when I was doing my MA at McMaster, uh, Eileen Schuler, the great yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. Uh, had suggested Ross as well. I believe it was Eileen, yeah. So uh, now, Ross, I never got to study with you, uh, but now this is my opportunity, right? So thanks for joining us. You just wanted to stay in Canada, right? It was just too hard to imagine leaving Canada. I can't, well, I can't understand that, but uh, that's good for you. I mean, you know, Duke is a kind of middling New Testament program. <laughs> no, for those who don't know, Duke is, has a very, you know, very prestigious reputation. <laughs> In New Testament studies. So thanks for joining us, Ross. Thanks so much for having me. We're getting off to a good start already. <laughs> <laughs> now, to, to get us started and to get to know you a little bit, but also to start getting into the text of Romans, could you tell us a little bit about what drew you to study the book of Romans? Yeah, well, um, I, I think for a lot of us who study uh, the Bible, uh, there's a personal story that's part of it. Um, I grew up uh in a, a United Methodist Church, um, where I heard the stories um, from a young age of John Wesley and how he uh, went to a meeting where at Aldersgate, where uh, someone was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Book of Romans, and his heart was strangely warmed. Um, I had an opportunity as a young teenager to get a hold of a Cokesbury reprint of Luther's preface, and uh, in reading it, it felt to me like the the gospel just came alive in a really powerful way. Um, so that got me interested in, in Romans. Um, doing graduate work at Duke with Richard Hayes, uh, I took a seminar on the book and became really fascinated in the way that uh, Paul picked up texts from the book of Isaiah and seemed to um, think that they were talking about him and his own mission. And so that launched me onto the, the path of writing a dissertation that later became a book. That's great. So we're going to be looking at Romans 9 to 11 uh, today. How do you see this specific passage here in Romans 9 to 11 
fitting into the broader book of Romans. So chapters one to eight before it, and then 12 to 16 afterwards. Yeah. Uh, the great New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd uh, famously thought that Romans 9 to 11 was such a, a sort of self-contained discourse that it could be just pulled out of the letter without any damage to the argument of Romans. And um, since Dodd's time, and together with a kind of reevaluation uh, on many fronts of the relationship of the earliest Christians to their contemporary Jewish context, um, it's become much more clear that Romans 9 to 11 is actually integral to the argument of the letter. Um, I think it follows um, quite naturally Paul's stated desire to build bridges in Rome that will further his, his missionary work. Um, so he's hoping to come to Rome soon. In advance of his coming, he's uh, giving a preview of the gospel that he preaches, um, not only to strengthen the Roman church as he has it with the spiritual gifts that he's been given, but to, to raise some support among them for a further venture west in Spain. Um, and the, the churches to whom Paul is writing seem to have been mixed uh, Jewish Gentile assemblies. And so as Paul um, begins his explication of the gospel in chapter one, uh, he begins a, a drumbeat that this is good news uh, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Um, by the time he's gotten through Romans eight and celebrated that nothing can separate us from the love of, of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, he's, um, he's got a, an issue that's sort of been on the back burner that now seems to be boiling over. That is, well, what about Israel apart from Christ? Mm. And um, so Paul launches into Romans 9 to 11 to show how his gospel is, in fact, still good news, despite the fact that uh, many of his own contemporary uh, Jews are not following Christ. Um, also, I think that Romans 9 to 11 paves the way for the ethical admonitions to follow. Um, Chapter 12 begins um, notably, in, in view of the mercies of God, I exhort you, brothers and sisters. And um, the, the greatest theme, I think, in Romans 9 to 11 is the mercy of God that extends not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so um, the sort of outlook on um, the amazing mercy of God to the undeserving in Romans 9 to 11 sets the stage then for a whole way of life together that Paul is going to um, talk about in Romans 12 to 15. Now, what Paul does in 9 to 11 is, well, shall we say, complex. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> could you perhaps just give us a brief overview of what's happening in these three chapters? Yeah. Um, as to anticipate a, a, a later question, perhaps, um, one of the biggest disputes with Romans 9 to 11 is whether we really have a coherent argument. Uh, there's some influential interpreters who have seen Paul sort of taking several runs at the top at a topic, um, and kind of giving up and starting over. Um, that's not my view. So um, the outline I'll give you is is partly shaped though by a, by a sense that this is a coherent argument. Um, Romans nine begins very starkly with Paul's uh, personal lament, and um, he laments. Um, we'll talk about um, the the fact that many of his kinspeople are apart from Christ. Um, as he goes on then to, to wrestle with that, he, he begins by saying in Romans 9, 6, well, it's not as though the word of God has fallen to the ground. Uh, and then he begins an argument to show, well, how is it then, if the God who made promises to the ancestors is to be trusted, how is it that the word of God hasn't yet fallen? Uh, and he develops the argument in Romans 9 by talking uh, about 
election. He rehearses the story of the patriarchs in the Exodus and um, talks about how it's the, it's the mercy of God uh, that has called Israel into being and sustains its life. Um, at the end of chapter 9, he looks more closely at what he calls Israel's misstep, uh, how they stumbled in their uh, relationship with God. Um, chapter 10 in our uh, versions of the Bible begins with yet another lament. Um, this time he's more specific. Um, that he's lamenting the fact that um, his fellow Israelites have actually been resisting uh, God's saving work. And then in chapter 10, he goes on to uh, talk more clearly about this, this word of Christ that um, promises salvation to everyone who will trust in God and confess that Christ is Lord. By the time he hits chapter 11, uh, Paul is, is um, then facing a question that his discussion has certainly raised in the minds of his hearers, which is, has God then just abandoned his people, his inheritance? And uh, chapter 11 begins to weave together themes from chapters 9 and 10 to argue that, in fact, God has a plan and that what is a, is a temporary stumbling um, will lead to, uh, to a fullness of not only Gentiles, but Israel being welcomed in to the people of God. Um, and the chapter ends with a celebration of God's amazing mercy uh, to Gentiles and Jews alike, all undeserving and all um, embraced by the mercy and love that are the truest self uh, presentation of who God is. Uh, so uh, we end, we begin with lament, we end with doxology. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, the way you put it there, it almost makes sense how it all fits together, but we're going to dig more into that <laughs> okay. and, and why some people have struggled uh, with that. Um, speaking of struggles, yeah. are there any parts of this text that you find particularly difficult to deal with and how do you deal with those parts or, or that part of the text? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> There are so many separate issues that we could talk about. I'll, I'll just return to this sense that um, a major decision that divides interpreters is whether and how to understand the coherence of the argument as a whole. Does it actually work or should we take its parts piecemeal? Um, and while recognizing that the hearers would have heard it sequentially, 9-1 um, through the end of chapter 11, um, I imagine as with all Paul's letters, um, there's further discussion, there's a rereading and a rereading. In fact, Paul gets a letter from the Corinthians we know about. They've been discussing his letter and they can't agree on what it means, so they ask Paul some follow-up questions. And I think on rereadings, um, there are some things that fall into place and become clearer. So whether one ought to interpret chapters 9 to 11 just sort of on the first hearing, or whether one ought to allow for a kind of reading and almost retrospective interpretation. That seems to me to be one of the core issues. And I've clearly come down on the side of wanting to, to hear it, uh, to pay attention to the way the argument unfolds, but also then to, to look at it back to front as well as front to back. In terms of going you know, front to back and back to front, you've written um, that verses, I think you think 20, verses 28 through 29 encapsulate the kind of gist of the passage. Yeah, Do you I want to unpack that a little bit for us? Chapter, which chapter? Of chapter 11, chapter 11, verses 28 through 20. Do you want to? Yeah, I, I think if, if Paul launches the whole discussion with the question, has the word of God fallen to the ground, chapter 9, verse 6, um, then the way he, he sums up the argument that he's made, we find, I think, in, in chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, 
um, talking about Israel and particularly about Israel apart from Christ presently, um, Paul says, with respect to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, you Gentiles, that he's, he's directly addressing here. But they are beloved of God for the sake of the ancestors. And I think it's that dialectic, enemies and yet beloved still. Um, and Paul goes on in the next verse, verse 29, to say the gifts and the calling of God come without regret. God doesn't change God's mind. Um, and so the word of God, the promises that God has made haven't fallen to the ground. Uh, they have unfolded in an unexpected way. And they will continue, in Paul's mind, they, they must continue to unfold because um, God can't be other than true to his word. Thanks, Ross. Now, let's go back now into maybe a little more granule discussion of uh, some of the texts. Uh, so we'll begin in Romans 9, and in verses 2 to 3, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. So why does Paul have such great anguish? Yeah. What's causing his grief? You know, I think the, the hearers of this would have wondered a little bit, too. And so in some ways, it, it takes reading the next three chapters to get a full picture of why Paul is grieved. Uh, but even here, I think we get a little bit of a hint. Um, I think Paul's language here echoes uh, the, the intercession of Moses on the mountain after the Israelites have built a golden, molded a golden calf and worshipped it. Um, and God says, you know, Moses, I'm just going to start over again with you. And Moses says, no, no, no. I'd rather you cut me off from your people uh, than if you're going to do that. And um, here Paul is, is um, similarly, I think, setting his fellow Israelites up in a position that they're, they're in danger, they're distanced from God. And uh, Paul is willing even to sacrifice himself if that would help. Notably, though, it's, it, he's willing to be separated from Christ. And I think that's the clue that here it's, it's that his fellow Israelites are apart from their Messiah at this point. I would go on to diagnose that uh, more fully throughout the chapter. And he uses words like stumbling, but also trespass, um, sin, uh, lack of submission. Um, but at the beginning, I think Paul sets him up very much himself up very much as a sympathetic intercessor for his kinspeople. So we go on then to verse six, and you know Paul says it is not as though the the word of God has fallen. And then he draws from Israel scriptures from the Old Testament to show that in fact God's word has not fallen. <laughs> right? He takes us to the story of Abraham and Sarah. He tells us about Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, and then he tells us about Isaac's and Rebecca's two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, and he doesn't stop there. He goes on to the Exodus and the story of Israel when, uh, when he quotes God's words to Moses about Israel. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he even brings up Pharaoh. I mean, you know, Paul is really steeped in Israel's scriptures as he engages this question. And, you know, it says it is not as though the word of God has fallen. How is Paul using these scriptural stories to answer that objection. Yeah, um, I, I think Paul's doing what we see many of his contemporaries doing, and actually what we see many of the scriptural writers doing. That's trying to understand their present in light of what God has done in the past. Um, you know, 
God reveals the divine name to Moses, I am who I am, or could be translated, I will be what I will be. But the idea is that who God is, is discovered in relationship. And it's God's dealings with the people of Israel that show just what kind of character God has. So if, if Paul wants to say, um, you know, it is not as though the word of God has fallen is a, is a way of saying God's promises remain reliable. God, God remains faithful to the promises God has made. He's going to start by looking backwards at the stories of Israel and showing how God has been dealing with the people. Um, and what's interesting is that while this is a, a move that lots of, of his contemporary Jews make, retelling the stories of Israel, um, Paul has a very particular spin on this story. Um, if, you, if you read Philo or Josephus, they'll tell stories about Abraham, for example, where Abraham is a paragon of virtue. Um, he's... Uh, he's worthy of God's attention. Um, what's interesting here is that as Paul tells these stories, um, much as he did in chapter four, telling the story of Abraham, the focus is on God's initiative, God's mercy. Um, the, the things that um, in chapter four make Abraham exemplary are really his trust in God, um, not much else. He, he responds uh, to a God who acts first. Um, here in chapter nine, Paul is showing how again and again, God takes the initiative to call a people for himself. So Abraham has lots of children, but God promises um, seed through Isaac. And then Isaac has, uh, and Rebecca have twins, but God takes the younger of those and says, I've chosen this one. I've, I've loved Jacob. And the implication um, that Paul spells out actually, as he talks about the Exodus, is um, that God is absolutely free to love and to show mercy. And um, that there's not a human claim on God's favor. So probably the, the most radical statement that Paul makes about divine initiative, divine sovereignty, divine agency, is in talking about Isaac and Jacob, where he says, it's clear that it's not in verse 11, 11. for example. Yeah, um, the twins, before they had done anything good or, or evil, um, so that God's purpose and election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. Initiative yeah. of God, Paul wants to say that's the context in which to ask now about what's happening. Um, who is God and how does God act toward us? And it's a story where God acts with great um, initiative, with great sovereignty and great mercy. Though we do also have, you know, we have, I love Jacob, but we have, but I have hated Esau. Yeah, <laughs> so right. what do we do with that? Yeah, yeah. And we have uh, not only um, God's saying, I'll show mercy even to disobedient Israel after the golden calf, but hey, Pharaoh, I've raised you up because I'm going to show my power by making you really uh, a hard nose. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, I mean, these texts, Ross, like, you know, this chapter, chapter nine, especially is kind of the... Um, Let's say it's the text that, you know, the people of more Calvinistic or Reformed persuasions, they go to it, right? When they're wanting to figure out how is it that people are saved, right? Uh, this is the text. I mean, I, Jacob, I love, Esau, I hated. Um, Paul goes on then to say um, that uh, he quotes God's words to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion, whom I have compassion. Uh, he raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of displaying his own power and to make his name known in all the earth. And then Paul concludes, not only does God have mercy in whom he chooses mercy, but just as you said, well, he also hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. And if you have a problem with God doing any of this, 
Paul quips back <laughs> with, well, how are you to argue with God, right? God is the potter, and yeah. he can make out of clay, out of the same lump, objects of wrath <laughs> made for destruction so that he can make known the riches of his glory uh, made known to his objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. I mean, you know, this passage is kind of ripe ground for that whole debate between theological debate between Calvinists and Arminians. I mean, do you think that that debate, is that obscuring how we read the text or does it offer some lenses that are helpful? Or I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. Um, and I'm interested in, in uh, hearing what you guys have to say. <laughs> I'll just say, um, yeah, I mean, Paul is Paul sounds an awful lot like Israel's prophets here. Mm. Um, you know, he's in fact, he's quoting Isaiah. Shall the clay say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? Mm. Um, or maybe you think about Jeremiah in the potter's house where God says, hey, look, the, the potter started making something, didn't like how it turned out. So he, he started over again. Um, there's definitely uh, uh, scriptural precedent. I mean, the story of Pharaoh um, it's interesting as you as you read through the narrative, you know, you find Pharaoh hardened his own heart and you find God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it's um, it's not clear always which one um, takes precedence. And so this notion that everything that happens is under the providence of God is a is a foundational conviction that Paul has. And I would say he shares with pretty much all of his contemporary Jews, um, whether that's all Paul wants to say or not. I think is the question. Um, and the difficulty here is that Paul's making an argument that's about something else. I mean, it's about the faithfulness of God toward Israel. Um, when we try to systemize this into a, into a soteriology, um, we inevitably have to try to think about what's the logic behind what Paul is saying and how can we draw some connections maybe where Paul hasn't drawn them. And, and by the way, how does Paul fit with other New Testament and Old Testament texts. Um, so John Calvin didn't, and Augustine before him, didn't build their systems of uh, theological reflection around just one text. Although Romans 9 was really important for Augustine as, as for Calvin. Um, the ways they came up to talk about God's sovereignty and human agency in light of that, though reflect a lot more scriptures than this. So I, it, certainly in terms of the history of reception, that's a, that's a, a legitimate question to bring to Romans 9. Um, at the same time, I think it's important that we look at how the words run here and where the argument goes. Paul does speak about vessels of wrath. Um, got another one, an example of those, uh, one of those from Isaiah where Assyria is uh, the axe in God's hand to discipline Israel. But Israel, Assyria thinks hey, I'm doing this myself. And God says, well, you know, one of these days you're going to find out that the ax can't boast against the one wielding it and Assyria is going to be judged in turn. Um, but despite the fact that Paul's talking about vessels of wrath here, it's interesting. It, is, it seems to me his argument is overbalanced, um, always toward mercy. Hmm. So um, this is a difficult verse to translate, but it, it begins in, um, in verse 22. Paul begins to ask a question. Um, if God, uh, willing to display his wrath and to make known his power, bore with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and so that he might show the riches of his glory uh, upon vessels of mercy, which he 
uh, chose beforehand for glory, that's the if. And it seems to me that then there's not a then because the, the idea of these vessels for mercy intended for glory, uh, in verse 24, he breaks in. And God called those vessels not only from among the Jews, but from among the Gentiles as well, us. And um, then goes on to speak uh, with Hosea and Isaiah about the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to downplay um, the, the negative side of election. Um, there is a, an Esau I hated along with a Jacob I loved. Um, but even here in chapter 9, the overwhelming uh, energy is toward God's unmer- the un- undeserved, unmerited grace received uh, by Israel and now even by Gentiles from God. Uh, you've made a point that the very end of uh, Romans 11, I think this is a point you've made, <laughs> is, is that um, the, the end goal is that God may be, what in verse 32, uh, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Yeah. I mean, so do you think that, I mean, would that be overreading from 32 back into nine in terms of the objects of wrath and objects of mercy? Or do you think that um, that, that is kind of the end goal? Yeah. Let me, do you let me think say more corporate categories, I guess, in terms of Israel and Gentiles as opposed to in a more individual way when we talk about salvation. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the other issue. It, Paul is talking about the the family story of Israel, he's talking about groups of people in chapter nine. Augustine and Augustinians after him have have then said, well, this also applies to individuals um, sort of destined for salvation or destruction. I'm not sure that's where Paul was going, but even if we grant that, um, in between chapter nine and chapter 11, where we end up with the doxology and mercy on all, um, there's a lot of focus in chapter 10 on responding to the good news. Um, Isaiah laments and Paul together with him, Lord, who's believed our message? Uh, because Paul knows that when the word is heard, faith results. And, and so how, how is it that um, he can lament over Israel, not only because something's happened to them, but because they have resisted the righteousness of God. On the other hand, Paul wants to say, that's not, it's not just a story of human response because God, in fact, has hardened part of Israel for another purpose. So we've, we get this interplay of, of divine and human agency that's, I think, really hard to adjudicate if we think it's a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. That for Paul, these are in competition. If God is doing something, the humans must be passive. Or if humans are active, then God must have taken a back seat. And um, what's fascinating and frustrating and why I think Paul just ends up in praise is because um, the God that he sees revealed in Christ is um, the God who, while we were enemies, sent his son to die for us. Um, This is the God who justifies the ungodly and a God who, looking back on Israel's scriptures, not only hardens and disciplines his people, but continually forgives and restores them. Um, so yeah, at the end of chapter 11, Paul says, wow, look at this. God has imprisoned everybody under disobedience. You Gentiles were once disobedient. Now you've been shown mercy. Israel in part is now disobedient, but they're now going to be shown mercy too. And, um, 
for those who who are uh, attracted by the notion of a kind of universal salvation, there's no better passage than the end of Romans 11, which says, yes, God has imprisoned all under his disobedience that he might have mercy on all. We might want to talk later about how to understand that all. Sure. Um, yeah. Ronnie, you alluded to maybe it's all as in, yes, Jews and Gentiles rather than every sure. individual. Right. Um, but that Paul can end up going from chapter nine to end up with this celebration of the mercy of God um, really gives me pause then when it comes to attributing to Paul something like Calvin's doctrine of, of election to reprobation. Hmm. Um, I see how Calvin could conclude that from the text that he's assembled and the logic that he's using. I just don't see Paul saying that in so many words or necessarily implying it. Okay. Um, I'm not sure how many of your listeners have access to New Testament studies, uh, a journal in our field, but um, Thomas Dixon, who teaches New Testament at Campbell University now, has a, an article in last year where he looks at the whole question of the wrath of God in Romans, gives it a little bit more attention than it's usually gotten, um, but thinks, um, again, that the way to, to think about wrath is in this larger story of a God who disciplines and also heals. Mm-hmm. Um, for whom vessels of wrath might actually serve merciful purposes in the end as well. Right. I mean, that's a very different way of thinking about wrath, right? In terms of wrath can be disciplinary is another way to think of anger or wrath, perhaps. Yes, yes. Um, and you could, I mean, certainly point throughout the Old Testament to that kind of tension right. in God's relationship with his people right. of discipline, but also healing, punishment, but also deliverance. And that's just constantly intertwining with one another, which might fit with what you've already said about how Paul is building this argument out of Old Testament mm-hmm. ideas. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, great. Let's turn to <clears throat> Romans chapter 9, verse 30 to 10 through 4. Uh, there, Paul tells us that Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did not strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, Ross, you've written about Paul's use of uh, the foot race metaphor here in this passage, but also in Romans 9 to 11. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about how that metaphor works or where do you see the language of that foot race and how it unfolds in the logic of the chapter? Yeah, great. Uh, I'm certainly not the only one who's seen that. In fact, um, Stanley Stowers in his important okay. book, or reading, Rereading Romans, um, one of many who's pointed it out. It, it's, it's hard to tell in the English translation. I think you just read the NRSV. Um, but the, the language Paul is using um, is one of pursuit, of chasing. Um, language that comes from, from a, a race course, among other places. Um, so it, Israel was pursuing a law of righteousness, but they didn't, they didn't catch up with or didn't grasp the law. Um, NRSV has, they didn't fulfill here, but that's not really the language. It's, it's the idea of catching up with somebody who's ahead of you and overtaking them. And um, similarly, the, the notion of um, stumbling You're on a race course, but you trip. And uh, we saw some of that in the Olympics in the last couple of weeks, um, unfortunate. And um, what's crazy about this metaphor is that on the one hand, the Gentiles seem to have won the race, even though they weren't entered in and weren't running the race course. 
And <laughs> we didn't see that in the Olympics. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> and the other scandalous thing here is that the, the scandal on the stumbling stone is put on the race course by God. And so Israel trips over a stone that God's put out there in front of them. Um, I, I think the metaphor does some work for Paul um, and uh, it creates a picture of um, Gentiles who've attained something but not through their own efforts. And an Israel who was seeking to attain something um, but ended up missing their goal because of the way they were running. Um, here again, Paul is um, sometimes so clipped in his speech, we have to fill in things. He says, why did Israel stumble? And his answer uh, in verse 32 is, uh, because not from faith, but as if from works. So what, what is not from faith? And I, I think if, if one sees here the metaphor of a race, it's, well, okay, Israel was running not from faith, but as if the race were a matter of works. It's hard to know where to, uh, you have to keep making decisions about how to read individual pieces and it all comes together. And you can also see how it could start unraveling quite quickly if you start pulling on some of these pieces. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I find intriguing about this metaphor is that Paul says Israel was pursuing a law of righteousness. We could talk about what that, that means. Um, but he doesn't say they didn't catch up with righteousness. He says they didn't catch up with the law. Mm. It seems to me that his, his diagnosis is that they haven't been thinking about the law or approaching the law correctly. And so the not from faith, but as if from works, I think has to do with their pursuit of the law. Mm. Um, a law that might lead to righteousness, but it's not that, oh yeah, they were on the right track and they just didn't reach the goal. It's they actually were on the right track, but they tripped because they weren't looking at the right thing. <laughs> now, what, you know, we've thrown around the word righteousness a lot, right? There's This is the yeah. law of righteousness that Gentiles attained righteousness. What is this righteousness? Is it the same? It, it, I mean, is this, is this the kind of uh, very difficult phrase, the righteousness of God that's at play here? That, you know, there have been many different ways to understand that phrase or what, what do you, how do you take the righteousness here? Yeah. Isn't there, there's a joke. I think you get two Pauline scholars in a room and you'll get three opinions on. One yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <clears throat> what is this righteousness? Well, I, I mean, Paul's, he's been talking about this since chapter one. Um, and it, this is one of these words that on, on the face of it, you know, we want to gloss. Well, do we call it righteousness or justice? But it's a word that Paul uses so distinctly that I think they're probably, we're probably justified in seeing it as a fairly, as a kind of technical term that, that actually carries a whole lot of semantic weight with it, more than, say, in, in many of the other words that Paul uses. Um, at, at heart, I think righteousness or justice in this context has to do with being in a right relationship with God. So um, to be in right standing with, that has um, the, the connotation of being in the right. Um, and the opposite of that is, um, is being sinful or guilty, um, being, um, but it also is a relational term. So being in right standing, the opposite of that is being estranged from, being in, at enmity with. And um, there, are, there are arguments 
good arguments, I think, for in certain passages, narrowing righteousness to, to the judicial or to the relational. Um, I think, though, the word carries both valences for Paul overall, and that it's a mistake to say, well, Paul's only concerned with deliverance from sin, not with guilt, or vice versa to say, well, Paul's language of righteousness really functions in a law court metaphor. It, it doesn't go further than that. I, th I think here, partly because Paul is drawing on Habakkuk for the righteousness language, but also Psalms and Isaiah, that you get both uh, a, a guilty person, but also a person estranged from God, finding that by the mercy of God, they're put back in a right relationship, or they're pleading with God to, to put them back into a right relationship. And I, I think conversely, that the, the righteousness of God or the justice of God has to do both with um, God judges justly, and so evil doesn't have a future, um, and that's good news for us, but also that God is committed to um, keeping promises. God is committed to the relationships that God has freely made uh, with Israel, with the cosmos in creating it, so that God's justice or God's righteousness is the confidence that God is going to deal rightly, um, which then, because this is a world that's under the power of sin uh, for Paul, um, that's going to involve God delivering and rescuing the creation from those powers, as well as um, judging and forgiving sin. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I, I mean, I think your point of, about, uh, you know, the passages in the Psalms and Isaiah that talk about the righteousness of God. I mean, there you have a number of very clear instances where the phrase righteousness of God means God being righteous so as to deliver people from their misery. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's really a really important piece to understand the righteousness of God. On the other hand, there's also, there are texts in Isaiah, for instance, uh, where, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. So in Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse, when he comes, he's going to judge, yep. right? In truth and in righteousness. Uh, but then there are other texts in Isaiah where, again, it's a kind of network passage with Isaiah 11, where when this uh, one who will come to judge, the result of that judgment is rescue for the for the pious yeah. and its destruction for the ungodly. So it seems like there's a kind of you can have it both ways. Right. You can have the judicial aspect, yeah. right, that, that God being righteous means he's going to judge the ungodly and bring judgment on them. And, but it also means that he's going to, because if he's a righteous judge, it means he's going to rescue the pious or those who have attained righteousness somehow. Does that sound yeah. in the ballpark of what you're thinking? That, that I think that's right on target. Um, I, as you were talking, I was thinking of, of Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, famous uh, quotation of, of the prophets, you know, let justice roll down like uh, waters. Um, King in this black church tradition of interpretation, I mean, when they're looking for the justice or the righteousness of God, it's rescue and it's also setting right what's gone wrong. And, and that means that people who are on the wrong side of justice are going to lose and those who are oppressed are gonna be rescued. Um, so I think that the notion of doing right has that social aspect of putting everything back into a right relationship um, that I don't think we have to choose one or the other for Paul. Great. Um, so in verse 30, Paul says that Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not reach the law. How do you make sense of the law of righteousness? Yeah. Um, 
it's but hard I, to- I'm, think, I'm thinking this, especially in light of other, I mean, that seems like a good thing, right? A law of righteousness, that seems good. But elsewhere, right. Paul seems to have these negative statements or kind of negative colorings around the law. Yeah. Um, even in his letter to the Romans, right? He'll say something like in Romans 4, the law works wrath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, how do you make, what does the law of righteousness mean? And how do, this is a, a really easy question, Ross. Yeah. How do you make sense of Paul's understanding of the law? <laughs> it's easy to see why people spend their lives trying to figure Paul out and um, arguing with one another about how to do it. <laughs> Probably you're wise not to have too many people in any one of these conversations. We never get very, very far. Yeah, I, I mean, so th- this Greek construction, uh, it's called the genitive construction. You put one noun in relationship to another. So you got law and you got righteousness, two nouns, and you say law of righteousness. Well, they're supposed to go together somehow, but how they go together depends an awful lot on the context of the sentence and the paragraph. And in the case of Paul, you know, we might want to look what he, as you were doing, Ronnie, what else does he say about the law in the letter? And maybe we'll go a field further if we want to understand Paul's thinking and say, what's he say about the law in Galatians or or in Philippians? Um, So that's not an easy answer to this question. Um, It's certainly possible that it could be an adjective. They were pursuing a righteous law. So in Romans 7, Paul says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Um, it could be what we might call an, an objective genitive. You don't have to worry about the term, but a law that establishes righteousness or a law that legislates right uh, judgments. Because of the race course metaphor and because of how I think it ends up in chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the telos of the law. Typically <laughs> uh, translated, Christ is the end of the law, right? Yeah, end or end as in termination, but perhaps end as in goal of the law. I think it's possible one could understand law of righteousness, meaning the law that leads to righteousness. And the closest parallel I can see in Romans to that is Romans 7, verse 12, where Paul talks about the commandment that was for life, um, which paradoxically has turned out to work death for me. But the intention of the commandment was life. And Paul will quote Moses in, in Romans 10, 5, those who do these things will live by them. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's a promise of righteousness or a promise of life held out by the law. Um, I think what he's saying is Israel didn't actually even grasp what the law was about because they approached the whole thing as if it were a matter of works and not of trust. Now, what does that mean? You know, I mean, that, <laughs> that itself raises, you know, questions about yes. what is Paul's problem with Israel? Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, are, is it that that the Israelites of his day are legalistic, you know, trying to earn their way to heaven and salvation? Uh, is that what his problem is or is it something else or what? What do you think? Yeah, there's the, the old joke about uh, Rudolf Bultmann, who thought that the only thing worse than breaking the law was trying, trying to, to do it. it. In other words, the human desire to justify oneself right. is the worst possible sin. Right. Uh, and for both on the existentialists, that made a lot of sense. I, I don't think so for Paul. Um, so I studied with Ed Sanders, who's one of the most fantastic teachers I've ever ever had the privilege of studying with, and whose writing about Paul and the law really did create a sea change in, in New Testament scholarship. Um, and so I'm, I'm in, convinced by Sanders when he wants to say the real problem for Paul is Jesus Christ. 
Um, that is, they tripped over the stumbling stone who is Christ. They didn't realize that the law was pointing them toward Christ. And so I don't think Paul, unless he does it kind of retrospectively, has a sense that there's some problem with legalism. Um, and legalism is something that we Christians struggle with, certainly. But I think Paul's complaint or charge was that in his day, not recognizing in Jesus Christ the fulfillment of God's promises, um, not recognizing the word of Christ that says if you trust in God uh, who raised Jesus from the dead, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Um, it, that's what Paul's talking about. What didn't they what didn't they attain? They didn't attain the righteousness that comes through faith, through trust in the faithful God who's acted now in Christ for Jew and Gentile alike. Right. Um, let's move on to chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. Okay. So here, Paul cites from two Old Testament passages, Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 30. So he says this, Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. So there he cites Leviticus 18. But the righteousness that comes through faith, and here he's now going to quote from Deuteronomy 30, says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. Now, it looks like, as many interpreters have understood uh, and still do understand, uh, mm -hmm. that Paul is contrasting two ways of righteousness. How do you see that? Do you see this as a comparison between, you know, a righteousness that comes from the law and a righteousness by faith? Or how do you deal, deal with this passage? That's a great question. I, this is a place where I think I want to have my cake and eat it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That is, I do think there's a contrast. Um, at the same time, I think there's a, also a kind of deeper coherence. And I'm not sure that listeners would have picked up the coherence on the first hearing, um, which is why I guess I say I want to have my cake and eat it. Um, I, I don't think Paul believes that the problem with the law is that it gave a false promise. The one who does these things will live by them. Um, but I think Paul um, assumes, I think it's probably clearer in the argument in Galatians 3, although people argue about that too, that um, nobody in fact has done these things. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, the law, Paul says in, in uh, Romans 8, was powerless to do something. It was powerless to do something that God has now done in sending his son. So that the law um, ends up being co-opted by sin, and all it can really do is um, identify sin and in Romans 7, um, stir it up even further. So Moses, on the one hand, is saying, yeah, the one who does these things will live by them. And in, in Galatians 3, Paul makes a very technical, terminological argument. Look, the law is about doing. It's not about faith. I'm not sure that's exactly what's happening here. He, he certainly contrasts the righteousness from faith, um, which points at what God has done in Christ. You don't have to say who's going to go up to heaven, who's going to come 
down. You don't have to bring Christ up or bring Christ down. God's already done it. Just trust and believe. Where I say there's a deeper coherence is that um, many people have noted, if you, if you take the quotation from Deuteronomy 30, Paul has replaced every reference to doing. So Moses says, don't say who's going to go up into heaven and get the word for us so that we may do it. Who's going to go into the abyss to get the word so that we may do it? No, look, the word is near. It's in your heart, in your mouth, that you may do it. Well, Paul's replaced all those that you may do it by a statement about something God's done. Mm -hmm. And I think in that way, he's redefining the kind of doing that brings life. Because of Christ, uh, the proper doing of the law is to put one's trust completely in what God has done in the flesh of his son, Jesus Christ, for us. Um, so there's a contrast. Um, you, get, you get the same contrast in Philippians 3. There's a righteousness from the law that might be my own. Paul says that's worth nothing compared to the righteousness from God on the basis of faith, on the basis of Christ's faithfulness. But here I think he's showing that the two are actually tied together a little bit more tightly. Mm-hmm. That Moses' promise is um, valid because God has stepped in and done what the law itself by itself couldn't do. Yeah, I think that's interesting, an interesting point, Ross, because even elsewhere in Romans, Paul has these actually positive statements about doing the law. I mean, my read of like Romans 2, uh, it is not the hearers of the law uh, who are righteous, but the doers of the law are justified, something like that. Um, In Romans 8, right, um, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, for the law of the uh, spirit of Christ has set you, well, I'm butchering it now. <laughs> I should probably look at it. Life, law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. From free from the law of sin and death. So that, But the goal is that the righteous requirements of the law might be, might yeah. be fulfilled, right? Um, so that's interesting, right? It's easy to read the contrast and to say, no, uh, we'd... Paul wants people not to be to do the law, but actually it seems like he actually wants them to fulfill the righteousness of the law, but giving them a way by which they can do it, which is by trust in Christ. Yeah. So, uh, Stephen Westerholm's made the point, and I, I think it stands, that Paul never talks about believers in Christ doing the law, um, but he talks about them fulfilling the law. And um, even in Romans 8, that the, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Mm-hmm. walk according to the spirit. So Paul will say, yeah, the, the law is fulfilled by love. Um, and right. he can speak about the law of Christ, which I take to be the law as kind of lived out, embodied in the self-giving of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Paul's got a lot of uh, passages that are polemical toward the law. At the end of the day, though, he, he wants to say that those who walk in the spirit actually fulfill the law. Mm-hmm. Um the law yeah. is holy and righteous and good. Right. It's just not to be pursued as if it were up to us to do it, but rather I think it's to lead us to Christ. Right. Well, we've already spent some time untangling some really <laughs> difficult knots throughout Romans 9 to 11. And we come now probably to the most difficult thought, maybe, oh, no. uh, which is verses 25 to 26 of chapter 11. He says, so that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. That 
you know, and so all Israel will be saved is, has attracted many different, you know, a pro- proposals to understand it. Um, what what do you think are some of the the main options on the table to interpret the text, and then how do you how do you come at it? Yeah, um, I realize for for the sake of time, we we've kind of skipped over most of chapter eleven, but I think you actually can't read those verses without reference to what's gone before. So I'll just give a quick recap. Um, Romans 10 ends with um, God lamenting in the first person through the words of Isaiah, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, Um, which gives you a picture of Israel as recalcitrant, um, but also God as persisting in reaching out his hands. And it leads Paul to say at the beginning of chapter 11, well, has God then rejected his people? Has God rejected his inheritance? And he answers it with a firm no. So this is where he begins to take us to all Israel will be saved. Oh, if God hasn't rejected his people, then what's up? And first he he borrows uh, a, a line from Elijah, basically, and um, and says, you know, do you remember back in the time, day when Elijah was complaining against Israel to God? They've killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And God's word is, no, Elijah, I've reserved 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul says, so even now in the present time, in the same way, there is a remnant, uh, uh, a chosen remnant, chosen by grace. And he says in a, in a way that actually recalls the race metaphor that we were talking about earlier, um, what Israel was seeking, they didn't reach, but the remnant did. And the rest were hardened. So Israel has now become a remnant and all the rest. And I think it's significant at this point that we don't hear about Israel anymore. We're hearing about them. He's talking about the rest. He has some pretty dire things to say, um, including blaming it ultimately on God. God has poured out on them a spirit of, um, of uh, confusion, uh, eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. So again, with the prophets, Paul's saying this isn't out of God's sovereignty. God is, I would say, judicially uh, hardening the rest of Israel, even though at the present time there's an elect remnant. But then Paul begins uh, in verse 11 and following um, to ask, well, have they stumbled so as to fall to the ground? Are they out of the race altogether? And he says, no. And he begins doing a kind of from the lesser to the greater argument. Um, if, if their stumbling brought um, riches to the world, if their stumbling brought the salvation of the Gentiles, um, then what in the world will their acceptance be? He's alluding here to a future um, in which the rest are no longer estranged, but in fact have been embraced. And he says, you know, this is going to be like the resurrection of the dead, or it is going to be the resurrection of the dead. It's eschatological language. Um, he's got a pretty sharp word to the Gentile believers in Rome. Um, don't think you're something special because God has hardened part of Israel to make room for you Gentiles. You stand only by faith and only by the mercy of God. And in fact, the God who hardened 
the part of Israel, the rest, is able to graft them back in uh, to the people as long as they don't persist in their unbelief. Um, so Paul's got a notion here of a, a, a plan of God taking, uh, developing through time. There's a, a period now where part of Israel has been hardened while a remnant remains elect. But there's a future. And this is what he doesn't want us to be ignorant of. So he speaks about a mystery, which, um, as, as Marcus Bachmuller has um, very ably shown, usually in Paul refers to Paul's insight into the meaning of Scripture and the plan of God, a kind of spiritual reading of Scripture that makes everything fall together. And the insight that Paul has been granted and that is attested by Scripture is that this hardening is only temporary. Um, it's for a period of time and for a part of Israel. And when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, he says, then, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and he goes and quotes two texts from Isaiah, the Redeemer will come from Zion. He will take away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. So Israel being saved, all Israel being saved, has to do with their sins being taken away, ungodliness being removed. As we've been listening to Romans, we're familiar with that. That's the blessing Abraham received, right? God who justifies the ungodly. It's the blessing David celebrates in the psalm. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Um, and here, Paul envisions all Israel experiencing this gracious act of God, uh, a salvation that will take away ungodliness and forgive sins. The debate then is, well, who's he talking about when he's talking about all Israel? And um, I was suggesting that earlier in the chapter, Paul divided Israel between the remnant and the rest. We hear about Israel again only in verse 25. Uh, hardening has come upon part of Israel, or upon Israel in part, until. Well, then who would the all Israel be? It seems to me it would be the rest who are now joining the remnant so that Israel is back together again. Um, Another option uh, is to see this all Israel um, also including the fullness of the Gentiles that have been gathered in. So that this all Israel... This is a, redef is, uh, this is a redefinition of all Israel, right? Yeah. Um, it's a redefinition of Israel that um, in a sense collapses the distinction between Israel and the church in, in right. Um, not, not that Paul collapses the distinction. So um, the, the sort of, in my mind, the two main views on offer, and I'll, I'll leave aside the idea that Paul thinks there's a kind of um, separate way for Israel to be saved that doesn't involve Christ. I, I think it's pretty clear that for Paul, um, the Redeemer who comes from Zion is the stumbling stone in Zion is Jesus Christ. Um, but N.T. Wright, who's... Um, brilliant and prolific, um, understands Paul to be talking about a process that's unfolding even now, where as Gentiles and some Jews join the church, all Israel is being saved. And there's a kind of um, almost realized eschatology. That is, there's not going to be something big in the future to look forward to, but as the church continues to grow, Paul sees this being fulfilled. And 
I think that um, Tom's reading underplays the the eschatological uh, cosmic language here. Paul talking about resurrection from the dead. Um, I think Paul's looking for something to happen yet in the future um, that involves not just uh, a few some that he talks about who, who may be saved because of his ministry or the ministry of the apostles, um, but actually, a, a, I guess you could say an end time um, turning of all Israel, meaning here, the rest who've been hardened to Christ. Um, I would tend so to- kind of a- a kind of left behind reading here, like Jerry, Jerry Jenkins or whatever, Jerry LaHaye. Yeah. Well, I don't, no, I don't think you have to tap into a kind of uh, premillennial eschatology here. Okay. Um, I do think Paul is looking toward the parousia, the, the coming of Christ, the Redeemer who comes from Zion. Um, you know, he, he tells the Thessalonians in probably his earliest letters that we're waiting for uh, Christ, the Redeemer, to come from heaven to, to save us from the wrath to come. Um, I think Paul here envisions Christ preaching in person, the gospel that evokes faith. Um, and perhaps he's thinking about his own encounter with Christ, you know, this zealous persecutor of the church who is just confronted with Jesus and turned from an enemy into uh, a beloved son. And I think he is imagining something like that for Israel. But that's, that's only one uh, view on offer. Um, another sees this kind of more gradual process where the church uh, becomes full of both Jew and Gentile. Yeah, I, I, I get this. One of the ways that that redefining, you know, that all Israel means, you know, Jews and Gentiles in the church or something like that. It seems like the one way I've heard the argument made and, and for that understanding is the person will go to Romans 9, the beginning of Romans 9. And then see that uh, uh, that not all this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are accounted as descendants. And that becomes a way on that view, redefinition view of all Israel to say, look, so it doesn't matter that it's your descendants of the flesh. It's the whole point is being a child of promise. And then because there are a number of parallels between Romans, the beginning of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 11, then someone comes to all Israel at the end of Romans 11 and say, see, it's not a, a defin the definition of Israel is not one based on descent from the flesh, but it's based on the promise, which has to do with trust in Christ. So that seems to be one way in which that argument is made. Um, but is maybe there's a difference. I mean, just because there are parallels, it seems to me, between Roman, the beginning of Romans 9 and the end of Romans 11, you still have to figure out exactly what's going on with those parallels. Yeah. Right? How, do, how do they work? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think the difficulty I have with seeing this as a fuller Israel or an Israel redefined as Jew and Gentile is that Paul has just been speaking about the Israel that's been partly hardened. Right. He immediately um, speaks then in the quotations about Jacob. Um, and we, we saw Jacob back in chapter nine, Jacob, I loved Esau, I've hated, um, Esau turns out to be the Gentiles who've been miraculously shown mercy, not my people called my people. It seems to me that Jacob would refer to ethnic Israel. Um, and another, and this is more of a question, um, that I'm still wrestling with, but Paul doesn't always tell the story the same way. Um, I, I don't think that Paul sort of has one master narrative, I, I think, um, which Ben Witherington, Tom Wright will, will be able to 
offer strong arguments for something like that. But I think Paul has a series of stories that he tells sort of from the cross backward and forward. So in Galatians and also in Romans 4, um, Jews and Gentiles alike are children of Abraham. To Abraham has been promised, uh, you'll be the father of many nations. So Abraham's the father of us all. But um, it, it's clear by Romans 8 and by Galatians 4 that being seed of Abraham is great, but what it really means is that through Christ, you're children of God now. Um, the Spirit has come into our heart to show us that we're children of God. I can't think of a place where Paul says to Gentiles, isn't it great you're part of Israel? You're part of Abraham's family. You're part of God's family through Christ. Um, there's a, a much uh, debated verse in Galatians 6, 16, uh, where Paul speaks about the Israel of God. Um, which might refer to Jews and Gentiles together, I don't, though I don't think it does. But I think it's significant that for Paul, Israel and Israelite are, in fact, continue to be not Gentiles. Um, the identity that Gentiles have now is sons and daughters of God, but not Israelites. Um, even in other letters that are sometimes not attributed to Paul, um, again, I think there's good arguments, for example, that Ephesians is, is by Paul, um, Christ creates one new human out of Jew and Gentile. It doesn't turn Gentiles into Jews. And so I think it, it would it, to see all Israel here standing in for the church, I think would be fairly unprecedented in Paul's thinking. Um, it's in Christ that Jew and Gentile come together as Jew and Gentile. Um, Paul doesn't need to take over. I don't think he takes the step of taking over Israel as a moniker for the church. Um, it won't be too long <laughs> before other Christians do that. Some of them reading Paul, even like Justin Martyr, who will say, oh, no, no, we're the true Israel. But I don't think Paul makes that step. Well, Ross, we want to thank you for, we've put you for, through the ringer here, <laughs> but we want to thank you for your patience walking us through this difficult and complex text. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And we have just one final question for you, which hopefully will be a little bit more fun for you to answer. So it seems like you're having plenty of fun diving into <laughs> oh, this, this issue. <laughs> um, which is, so in biblical studies, we've kind of perfected this genre that we call the blurb. Uh, I mean, other, ever, other fields do this, but I just don't think they do it as well as we do. Uh, so we wonder if there's anything you would like to blurb. Now, it could be a book. But it could be anything else. It, you know, it could be a movie or a TV show or a life hack, whatever it is that you might want to recommend to our listeners. Anything you could blurb for us? Great. Well, um, yeah, I, actually, it's a it's not a new book. It's about ten years old. Um, but I, I read it on the beach this summer uh, by Rowan Williams called "The Lion's World," and it's uh, Rowan Williams' critical appreciation of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, and. Um, it's a it's a nice easy read like anything Rowan Williams write it's learned and brilliant and clearly stated, um, but it just recaptures something of um, the feeling of joy that Lewis is trying to and often succeeds in uh, inculcating in his readers. Now I'll just rather than blurb it I'll read one line that I think captures sure. what Williams finds so attractive about Lewis. He says, what Lewis portrays with such power and freshness in Narnia is simply grace, the unplanned and uncontrolled incursion into our self-preoccupied lives of God's joy in himself. Wow. That's just a taste of the book. Um, 
Yeah. For those, for those who are troubled by aspects of, of the Narnia stories, like what about Susan? Uh, Williams tackles some of that in conversation with some really good Lewis scholars. Um, but you're left kind of understanding why Surprised by Joy uh, was the, the title Lewis chose for his autobiography and how an experience of joy, uh, the joy of God, joy in God, is, um, is palpable to so many readers of the Narnia stories. Well, great. Thank you. I appreciate the recommendation personally, because I'm going to be teaching a course on C.S. Lewis in Oxford uh, in May with Stanford students. So I'm going to go out and get that book myself. So blurb was effective. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, Well, thanks again for taking this time to uh, walk us through this text. Um, We really appreciate it, uh, Ross. And for those of you, our listeners, uh, we would always appreciate if you take the time to Give us a rating on iTunes, share this podcast uh, with others, let them know about what's going on here. And you can hear other scholars like Ross Wagner walking us through these difficult texts in the Old, in the old and New Testament so that you can understand them better. So until next time, keep reading. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plunk, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.